If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Asif Masani. Asif, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So just let me give a little bit of a background about Asif, and then I'll give him an opportunity to tell a little bit more about himself. He comes to us from Mumbai. He's an author. He recently published a book about FPNA. We'll have him talk about that later. He's a chartered accountant. He currently works his day job as a manager at Coursera. He also has a part-time LinkedIn creator, author, trainer, many other things. And he's had various different FP&A roles over his career. So Asif, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, Paul. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for again having me. I was waiting for you to have me on the show, I think, for the last couple of months and finally we made it happen. So thank you so much. Now we're excited to have you. I'm really glad we uh, get to have you on the show. Amazing. I started my career not in FPNA. So like most uh, finance folks do, I started an audit. I spent about three years as an intern working with EY in audit. And I really enjoyed it for the first couple of years while I was learning a lot, working with different clients, learning about different industries. And when time passed, uh, when I completed three and a half years, I realized that I should try something new. So that's the time when I wanted to switch. And I didn't know about FPNA at that time. And I wanted to go into either valuation or investment banking. So I did a certification on financial modeling and started applying for jobs in valuation and investment banking. Uh, but I could not uh, get into it. And by coincidence, I got an interview with Citibank, which was an FPNA profile. I'd never heard about FPNA before doing that interview. And I made it through that interview. And I then started there as an analyst, worked there for about five years. 2019, I left uh, City as a FPNA manager, took a break uh, for about a year, year and a half to do a couple of other ventures I wanted to work on. And then again came back into FPNA, I think around 2020 after COVID. Uh, worked with one uh, pharmaceutical company called Pfizer. And uh, right now I'm working with an edtech company, which is Coursera. I lead the FPNA function for India and APAC uh, at Coursera. Great. Thanks for a little bit about your background. And I agree with you. It's pretty typical for someone to start in accounting or auditing, you know, sometimes investment banking or consulting. But most people don't start their career right out of college in FPNA. Some do. But I agree, more common path is often that accounting background. So, you know, next question I have here for you, you have over 50,000 followers on LinkedIn. I know you recently hit that number. Congratulations. You also run your own YouTube channel. I think you have over 5,000 subscribers there, as well as you have a website, FPNA Professionals. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you got started in creating content? How'd that come about? 
let's go one by one so let's talk about content first so we so i was in between jobs around in 2021 and uh, i was finding it difficult to get my next role so that's the time i thought i should maybe build my personal brand on linkedin start writing about fpna on linkedin so that people when they search me on google or they search me on linkedin they can know okay this person knows uh, if he's applying for a role he is he's good uh, at fpna so that was the primary reason i wanted to have a good personal brand uh, visibility among employers so that was the reason i started writing in 2021 i think year and a half back as i did that more uh, it developed more as a hobby and a passion and i think by end of uh, 2021 uh, i knew that okay i wanted to make this uh, more uh, bigger part of my life so that's how i got started on, on linkedin and once uh, this happened i think it was about one year back uh, december 2021 then i had enough content so somebody reached out to me on linkedin asking me to do a webinar for ca students who are just newly qualified and they wanted to know about fpna and i did that webinar uh, that person who recorded the webinar he uploaded on youtube that youtube video didn't do a lot uh, it didn't get a lot of traction initially in the first two three months uh, it was less than 100 views but somewhere uh, around the three months uh, mark after it was uploaded suddenly got like 3000 4000 views and then people started reaching out to me on youtube as well like on commenting on that video so that's the time i started uh, creating more content on youtube it was very difficult uh, to create both content for linkedin and youtube along with my day job so what i figured out uh, the best way would be to get content from other experts so i started then interviewing i started my own all about fpna series uh, i think 8 months back uh, with carl as being the first guest carl sideman and then i have continued that doing once a month so i don't do a lot of content on youtube these days especially in the last 8 months but i do a lot of interviews just like this one so that makes it a little bit easier so i don't have to create content i just have to curate uh, just plan an episode and other people are actually helping me create that content Great. On the website, it was very similar. So it was around, I think, three months back. I had about forty, fifty articles on on my LinkedIn profile, and I decided let me group all of these articles together at one place. LinkedIn is a social media platform. You never know. You might uh, it's working today. It might not work six months from now or one year from now. You don't have control on on LinkedIn basically. So I thought, let me group all of those articles at another place, just in case something happens to LinkedIn. Uh, I have another place to continue my writing. Makes a lot of sense. What advice would you offer to someone who wants to create content? Say they wanted to get started creating content. What do you tell them? I would maybe tell them a couple of things. So first one would be to identify your audience and pick up one uh, topic or one subject uh, which you can go deep in. So that will help you focus on one area. So that is. definitely one and second would be do it consistently don't stop after 2 months or 3 months do it consistently for at least 6 months and if you are creating good content you'll definitely see the results thanks that's very good advice similar to what i give be consistent you know find your voice know what you want to talk about you know i recommend generally niche down and find your area right like you said your focus so those are all good pieces of advice and i kind of laughed when you mentioned you know you got started it was right helping build your brand find a job i mean when i got on linkedin that's really where it came from was find a job and kind of built over time and uh, somewhere along the line i found i liked it and kept building 
So I think we have similar stories there, also similar with FPA. I didn't know what it is when I took an FPA role. I don't think most people do coming out of college, becoming a little more popular. But and I know you're doing a lot to help people kind of learn that FPA is a good career path. And I think this is a perfect transition to your book that you recently published called All About FPA. Can you talk a little bit, a couple things? One, what is the book? I know it's about FPA, but kind of what's the focus? Is it for people starting their career? you know, senior people, kind of what's the focus of the book and what was the impetus for writing a book? The reason for writing the book was exactly the point that we discussed. So a lot of people, at least in my country, uh, which is India, they don't even know about FPNA, just like I didn't know seven years, eight years back. So a lot of people even don't know that FPNA exists as a career. So there are job descriptions which say finance manager, maybe finance specialist or something like that. But it's still very new, at least in where I belong. So a lot of people, if I ask, say, 10 people who graduated in finance, maybe seven people out of 10 may not even know what FPNA is. So that was one of the biggest reasons for me writing the book. So at least people know what FPNA is and they have another option. They can aim for maybe not immediately, but maybe at some point in their career. So that was one of the reasons. Uh, second reason was I always wanted to write a book. Uh, this was there for the last, I think, five years. And once I had uh, some content uh, on LinkedIn, I figured out this might be the book I can write. So I already have like 100 pages of content. If I can focus on this, I can maybe make it a book with just 200 pages to 20 pages. Makes a lot of sense that you'd already done all that content. You'd always wanted to write a book. So why not write one about FPNA? Can you talk a little bit about how it's been received? How have sales gone? How have people asked about it? Just kind of what's been the general feedback since you launched it? I mean, I know I've heard some good things, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. It's a very niche uh, topic. So it's not going to sell like thousands or ten thousands of copies because of the people that are connected to me on LinkedIn, people who receive my content, people who have been receiving and reading my content for over the last one and a half year. Especially it, it was received very well by them. I remember uh, when we did a pre-launch in October, I think in the first week we sold about 100 copies. So people were waiting for it to release. And since then, uh, after that, I have been sell it has been selling like five to six copies a day. So it must have crossed 300, 400 right now. Those are good numbers. And right now it's currently only available in India. Is that right? Or is it available anywhere? So the physical version, the hardcover version or the paperback version, I should call it, it's available only in India. The Kindle version was just launched about three weeks back. So that should be available in most countries where you have Amazon access. Got it. Okay, great. So the Kindle version is available basically everywhere that you have Kindle and Amazon. I'm curious, what was the hardest part about writing the book? The hardest part uh, would be to develop that habit of writing every day. So even though I had some content with me, it still had to be refined. It still had to be outlined and put together in a way that it comes together as a book. So for even after having some bit of content, I had to write uh, about maybe 30 minutes a day for around two and a half, three months between, I think, April to June, uh, that period. So I think the hardest part was the first 10 to 15 days where I had to force myself. I had to block my calendar uh, for an hour every day and I had to force myself to write 400 or 500 words. I think that was the hardest part, the first 10, 15 days. Once I got over the first 15 days, uh, it became a lot easier. And the second hardest part uh, was the proofreading because once the book got ready, I sent it to the editor. The editor came back with a 
correcting all the grammatical mistakes, making the sentences look better. So once it came back, uh, it was the budgeting period. So it was around uh, that August and September mid time. And uh, the edited version was with me, I think, first week of September. And I could not find time to read it. Um, I, I could not find time to proofread it until I think end of September, first week of October because of the workload at office and it, it was the budgeting season at that time. So finding time to proofread it and I had to do the proofreading at least three times just to make sure that everything is okay. So doing that proofreading three times uh, was very challenging just because it was very hectic at work as well at that time. Yeah, I know how difficult budget season could be. So I can imagine how hard it was to try to balance budget season and writing a book at the same time. Not an easy task by any means. So I admire you for sticking with it because that's a lot of work. So congratulations on that. And, you know, as you mentioned, anyone who's interested in the book, check it out. The Kindle version is available. Go to Amazon, just look it up, all about FP&A, and you can find it there. So next question on the book, who's the audience and what's really the key message? What would be the takeaway you want someone to get from the book? If there was one or two things you hope they uh, take away from the book, what would those be? So let me talk about the audience first. So the audience for the book is people who are just starting out in FP&A or people who are in finance and don't know about FP&A. So it's for people to learn the initial concepts about FP&A. So that's the book tagline as well. It's called Getting Started with Your FP&A Journey. So the book is targeted towards them. Also people who are slightly experienced, maybe one or two years but they need uh, to comprehend it better. So just in case they want to appear for an interview, although they need, they know a little bit about FP&A, but they cannot comprehend it or they cannot articulate it in an interview. So I think a lot of people also buy the book for that reason. So it's for beginners in FP&A. One uh, or two key messages uh, book shares uh, is on data and budgeting. So it covers the budgeting process. Uh, so one of the key chapters in, in the book is on the budget, on creating a budget. So the key focus is how to create a budget from scratch for different areas, uh, right from revenues to all the expenses. Great. It's definitely a book that is needed in the marketplace. No question. I mean, I get asked from a lot of people how to make that transition into FP&A. You know, you think of college students, most of them don't know what FP&A is. I have a friend here locally that teaches, he created an, a course for MBA students, a master's course to introduce them to FP&A. And he teaches it for the, you know, the MBA program here at the local university. And I think it's great because very few universities have those type of courses. I think a lot of people come out, I mean, almost everybody knows, okay, there's corporate finance, there's treasury, there's accounting, there's audit, there's investment banking. But like you said, most people don't even know there's FP&A coming out of college. If you ask 10 people that just finished their chartered accountant, hey, do you want to do FP&A? Most of them would be like, what is FP&A, right? So I think you definitely hit on a very important subject that people need. So speaking about FP&A, why are you so passionate about FP&A? What do you love about it and what keeps you working in FP&A? So I strongly believe in finance. Uh, FP&A is one of the most uh, happening profiles. So if you are somebody with a personality trait that doesn't want to follow the rules, like if you don't want to do the same 
stuff in terms of the accounting cycle or be it following the checkbox approach of auditing or maybe being abreast with the taxation laws which keeps changing so if you are working in finance uh, and if you're not interested in some of those traditional roles that i just talked about i think fpna is a great option uh, and it was for me as well so it it allowed me to use my skills which i already had from accounting and audit and also it allowed me to be a little more creative which was not possible in in those roles that's the reason i like uh, fpna i love your point about the creative and i like to joke i heard this on a podcast i think once and it said if an accountant gets creative this is the difference between fpna and accountant if an accountant gets creative they go to jail if an fpna professional gets creative they get promoted you know and obviously not true tongue in cheek but it's that whole idea, right? FP&A is very creative. It's very forward-looking, lots of assumptions, where accounting is backwards-looking, very structured, very procedural, as is auditing, as is tax. Yes, there's some creativity, sure. But it's just, it's very different, right? That FP&A, there's a lot of understanding, business and partnering, and things you that I enjoy, that if you really enjoy those type of things in the business and the commercial, it's a great place to be. Right. For some people, it's not right. If the counting and the structure and the procedure and that you really like tying everything out, then it's a great place. It works for you. You know, FPNA is not for everybody for sure. I'm like you. I really enjoy FPNA. Yeah, and I have friends in auditing who are still in auditing uh, and they enjoy what they do and I completely respect that. So they are actually very passionate about be it audit or taxation uh, and that's completely fine. It depends on what you want to do in life. A hundred percent agree. I have a friend, you know, an accountant I worked with and I was trying to hire an FP&A analyst and I asked him if he's interested. He's like, no, I already did that. That's way too subjective and political. He's like, I prefer accounting. I know what the numbers need to be. I know the answers. Don't want to deal with making, basically making up numbers was his way of putting it. You know, that's what it felt like him for FP&A. I'm like, all right, well then you're in the right spot. You stay where you're at and I'll stay over here in FP&A because you're a great partner. I love working with you. Yeah, oh, it's, uh, it was kind of funny. So exactly like you said, find your passion and stay there. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow. FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. So let's talk a little bit about your day job now. We've talked quite a bit about the content creation, your book. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the, you know, the FPNA structure at Coursera. A little bit about, you know, how it's structured and what your role is there. Sure. 
I'd love to cover that. So Coursera is growing company. So it started about 11 years back. So it just celebrated its 10th anniversary last year. So it's not a startup, like not a very new organization, but also it's not very established. Like it's not been there for decades. So it's a little bit in between. So you do have a good FP&A team set up there, which has been there for about three and a half years. And also because it's still relatively new in the whole scheme of things, three years is not a long time uh, if you consider business or consider organization. It's still learning a lot. It's still uh, evolving as we go. So how it is set up is we have three business units. Uh, One is the B2C, which is the online platform where people can go and purchase courses and certificates. So they can do the course and certificates for free, but if they need uh, to download the certificate, they need to pay. So that is the first business. The second business is enterprise side where we sell enterprise licenses to big companies, which they can use to train their employees. And the third is online degrees, which is tying up with premier institutes along the globe, the top uh, most institutes in every different region and uh, bringing degrees to students uh, to different parts of the world. So those are the three business units. So it's exactly set up that way. We have a small team working on each of these three business segments. Then there is a regional team. So there's a team uh, for each of the regions and I am a part of that regional team. So there's one person looking at India and APAC, that's me. There's another person looking at the EMEA region and there's a regional team of four to five people. So there's a detailed uh, the regional teams and then there is a corporate team which consolidates everything. So it's about a 20-22 people team, about 10 people in business teams, like business aligned teams, about three to four people in regional teams, about three to four people in corporate team. And then there are a couple of folks who are specialized in the budgeting tool, like they are the admin for the tool that we use. That all resonates with me very much similar to American Express. I remember, especially when I was in business travel, I supported the APAC, you know, Asia Pacific region and Latin America. We had someone for EMEA, someone for the US. You had your corporate and then you also had some local. Sometimes they're helping support the business. A lot of similar things. We had the tools people just on a bigger scale, obviously being American Express, right? So that structure is pretty common. So, you know, in your role, how do you support the business? What are, I mean, outside of budgeting and forecasting, you know, what are maybe some of the things you're responsible for? I know it varies by company. Like, is it mostly investment? Do you do a little bit of the sales commission type stuff? What are the kind of key responsibilities you have? The budgeting, forecasting, and reporting are the things that we do anyways, which which is a part of your BAU or your monthly calendar. Apart from that, we in Coursera have OKR-driven culture. So OKR is objective and key results. In fact, actually speaking to that real quick, if I can find it, this was the book first written about OKRs. Measure what matters. If you haven't read it, just tell the audience. I really recommend it. Good book. Yep. 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 It's Bernard Marr, right? No, this one's John Doerr. John Doerr. Okay. It's Andy Grove who started at Intel. So it's really kind of the history of where it started. There's others who have written books about it too and how they used it and also how uh, Google talks about how Google, the Gates Foundation and some others have used it. What I know, I, I joined this organization about a year and a half back, but from what I know, it has been inspired from Google's OKR methodology. So we've adopted a lot of... Yes. So Andy is the guy who 
taught it to Google. He used it at Intel, Andy Grove, and he was one of the early investors at Google. And he helped them implement it there. Understood. Okay. Yeah. So maybe this book is one of the key underlying philosophies that we also follow. So it's it's the OKR philosophy. So every individual or every team has an OKR. So apart from what you're doing every day, every month, there are like a couple of special projects that you are expected to drive, which might be inside your FP&A team or it may also be outside. Uh, it may be a cross-functional project where you are working with different business teams uh, to help them achieve a business objective. So usually there are like two or three key results or objectives that you need to set every quarter and then you have to also report during the quarter how you're doing on them after the quarter how how did you do and what you learned so that is one and also we then report about this as well in what we call as the quarterly business review so once a quarter is done we do report whatever were the highlights of that of the previous quarter what were the low lights as in what didn't go wrong Oh, sorry, what didn't go right, or what were the mistakes, and how can we learn from those mistakes? There's a detailed uh, business review that happens uh, at the quarter end, and then you also plan for the next quarter. So based on the forecasting that you do, you also do layout plan that what you already you have a plan which was done last year, but you again set the same OKRs for the next quarter. It will not be the same as plan which was done maybe six months back. It might be very different. So again, you set your objectives and key results for the next quarter. And that, again, the same process begins for the next quarter. And how have you liked OKRs? How have you found those work for you? Is that a method you enjoy? Kind of what's your thoughts on using OKRs? I actually love using it. And I especially believe if an organization grows fast, it is one of the good ways to keep everybody aligned to the strategy to whatever the vision uh, that the CEO and the senior leadership has. So setting that in the OKR uh, and that drills down to different business units, different functions. I think it's a very good way to keep everyone aligned on, on the company's mission and companies, whatever the objectives are. I agree with you. We used it at one of my prior companies and I thought it was a good method and it can work really well when you have buy-in from senior leadership and everybody's focused on key results that all roll up to really help drive the strategy, right? It can help with alignment and it can really help you to know how to focus your time because you know, okay, I need to get this key result. I need to you know, show, demonstrate that I've done that. And so it can help you focus. I think it's a great, great tool. It's not very rigid as well. During the quarter, if you figure out, okay, there's a better objective that you need to pursue, you can say, okay, right now we decide to deprioritize it uh, against the other objective, which is a priority. It's not very rigid as well. Unlike you have uh, the KPI, which is very rigid. Okay, this is the KPI, you have to achieve this KPI or you have to follow this. Yeah, there's definitely some flexibility in it and being able to adjust and recognizing that need for change sometimes as you get into the process. It's a good point. So, you know, speaking of KPIs, kind of, you know, metrics, do you have some favorite metrics you like to look at when you're supporting a business? I know it's going to vary some, you know, obviously business to business, but are there some key maybe financial or operational metrics that you always like to look at? Maybe kind of your go-to. I especially like working with the marketing metrics so my favorite metrics are all related to marketing just because i am also personally interested in in marketing and we do a lot of this on linkedin as well so metrics like uh, 
lifetime value of a consumer or the cost to acquire a customer or cost per click all those type of metrics which are uh, used in online advertising so i love tracking those those are all really valuable metrics so important today with you know so much of business being you know content driven trying to fill that top of funnel and understanding how are my dollars providing a return are they you know is it worth my time and that's always the challenge we have a great episode we're releasing here probably in about 3 weeks where we had the uh, VP of marketing from DataRails and Christian Wittig from DataRails and they talked about how marketing and FP&A work together and we discussed a lot of those metrics so uh, that episode will actually come out before this one so if anyone's listening when i say it'll be a few weeks it will have already happened by the time this episode's released but it was just a few weeks ago we had that conversation i'd love to check it out yeah i'll let you know when it comes out so that will be exciting next question i have here is just kind of shifting a little bit now, can you talk about how established maybe FP&A is in India? And then a little bit, you know, what's it like to be a practitioner in India? And then maybe your thoughts of how that compares to the U.S. or other parts of the world. I can talk more about India. Maybe you can pitch in for the U.S. Yep, I will. I can say in India, it's been still evolving. So although it has been around since maybe 8 10 years now as i mentioned earlier a lot of people still don't know what fpna is and that's very very common so in india not a lot of uh, profiles mention the description job description as fpna if they are not big companies if they are mid sized companies they would often advertise the job description as finance manager accounting and finance controller something like that which will have some components of fpna but it will not be there in the headline so people do not relate fpna as a separate job description just like uh, i don't know if that's true in the us which is different in bigger companies uh, where they do have fpna job designations like fpna analyst moves to fpna senior analyst and then assistant manager manager senior manager and goes to director vp so larger organizations follow this but most of the organizations which are mid size they don't call fpna as FP&A, although they might be doing like 80% of the job of FP&A and finance business partnering. How about US? Yep, I'll talk a little bit of my experience. So my experience with India and FP&A, I'll talk to that, has mostly been where companies I've worked for have outsourced it. So a lot of the work I've seen in FP&A from India is often very procedural. It's very much, hey, preparing the reports, doing the standard stuff that you can productionalize, so to speak. And then a lot of the business partnering is managed in the US by, you know, generally more experienced FP&A professionals, where a lot of times the stuff we're moving to India, you know, for cost arbitrage, labor arbitrage, is that stuff that is very standardized, very early in the career type of work that you can train someone that's just out of college a year or two to do versus that more experienced day-to-day business partnering part of FP&A. So that's kind of my experience of how I've worked because I've managed a few people in FP&A in India at American Express and at uh, Solera. So I've worked you know, quite a bit with FP&A in India for U.S. companies. So my experience, I'm sure, is a little different. But when you talk about just kind of FP&A in the U.S., the, the FP&A job role is very common. Startups, you don't see it, right? We all know that. Startups generally have fractional CFO. It's not till they hit a certain point. You know, typically if they're venture backed, it's usually say Series C, 
you know, Series B, Series C, that they really start adding that FP&A. Usually that first hire is a finance person that will do some FP&A or a founder will do some of the budgeting, but they're also doing controlling. And, you know, you have to at a certain point till you really add that team. I think most companies wait a little longer than they should. I had uh, someone on the podcast that talked about that quite a bit, Casey Wu, who talked about just the importance of, look, hire FP&A as early as you can, because it's really now being seen more and more, especially in the U.S., as a strategic function. And generally, FP&A and business partnering are the same role. Where you go into Europe, they're often separated in other places. You could still have a corporate FP&A and kind of a commercial or a business FP&A. I've spent most of my career supporting the business. I've only had one role where I was really in a corporate role. All my other roles have been out in the business units, and I like that. I'm not a big fan of wanting to roll everything up and deal with all the decks and, you know, kind of like, as I say, herding cats between all the different business units. I really like getting into the strategy with the business and partnering with them and figuring out, you know, how we achieve our objectives. So that's a little bit of how I've seen it in the U.S. And Mike, you know, I, I think it's probably more established, more common. It sounds like in India, it's still often done kind of under controllership for a lot of companies till you, you get into the really big companies or you're supporting companies that aren't based in India. Is that probably a fair kind of assessment? Right, that's right. On the outsourcing, yeah, it's a big uh industry so especially banking and it companies uh, i know most banks uh, you mentioned american express so even i we used to work with city bank i started in a very similar role so i started in what they call it a center of excellence so yeah what they do is centralize all their functions in one location and it's, it's not just in india they have two or three locations so i know in city we had india which is mumbai and then we also had costa rica and they were like two three locations so you used to get the benefit of both a lower cost. Uh, so you could you could have a lower cost base, centralize everything so you can automate a lot of stuff and also get that time zone advantage. So if it's a very large, big organization, they want to be working 24 hours and the only way they can do it is like have people working on different sides of the world. All makes sense. And I've seen all of that, right? You know, I know city, all the banks, the IT, like you mentioned, Almost all of them have center of excellence in India that are doing various functions, whether that be accounting, APAR, FP&A, a lot of finance functions they centralize there in India. Like you mentioned, getting the 24-7 hour support, there's often some cost benefit as well. And, you know, it's a great way to kind of build that team and great way to start a career because you get to work in a center of excellence with a large company and see how a lot of things should be done. And a lot of folks also transition from that role to, so if they're working with somebody in UK, they, after three years, they might get an opportunity to transition to UK to take up a better role or a more business facing role, I should call and, and a lot of opportunities in those center of excellence as well. Makes sense. And I, I would agree with that. A lot of opportunity. So, you know, shifting gears here a little bit, we just ring in the new year. Can't believe we're first week of the new year. So what do you see as maybe the biggest trend coming into 2023 for FP&A? I don't know about 2023, so I cannot predict about 2023. What I can see is what's happened in 2022, they, that will continue to happen. So what you've seen uh, as a trend in 2022, especially around use of technology, and you know it better than most about tools and technology. So I think a lot of uh, automation, 
AI and machine learning driven processes so that people can get more accurate forecast more streamlined data real time data so i think all those things happened in 2021 2022 and those things will continue to accelerate so that is one and the second would be on the collaboration and the strategic planning side so once all of these things are automated fpna will have more time and they already have more time to become that strategic partner or like participate more on contributing to the business the special projects i mentioned at corsera those are all part of these uh, strategic planning and adding more value to the business so if i heard it i would summarize it as two things like you said one continuing to leverage technology to automate and streamline processes right technology is an enabler it continues to get better and the second thing that does is it frees us up to focus on the value creation activities the strategy the partnering and we're going to continue to see that trend continue as we continue to automate and free up time we'll see fpna playing more and more of a strategic role is that a fair statement yep yeah. i think you summed it up uh, very well all right perfect just want to make sure i'm i understood you there i thought i got it so all right now we're going to get into some personal questions we're coming up near the end of our time and just have a few more questions for you this is one we like to ask people Can you talk about the accomplishment you are most proud of from your career? So if I had you in a job interview and I asked you that question, what would be your answer? So this might be very counterintuitive. So this experience is actually not from my previous job. So this was a break that I took after the city bank role in 2019 to pursue different roles. So I thought maybe let let, let me try. At that time we had a new taxation system in India. So there was an implementation of a new taxation regime which is called goods and service tax uh, which was very new so i got interested reading about it around 2018 2019 and 2019 i thought okay let me try something outside of fpna maybe i should try the new tax system that's coming up in india so i read a lot of books about gst and i set up a practice in gst in 2019 and after leaving the job at city and it did well i think i hired a bunch of people i it went very well uh, for a year but then there were two things one i was not very happy doing that role i was again getting that same feeling of what i got after working in audit for a couple of years so i realized that taxation may not be the best thing i should be doing with my career and i realized i maybe i should come back to fpna so i think that experience is something that has taught me a lot of things first of all like building your own team marketing yourself so even when you're selling a taxation service to a client you have to be very good at pitching marketing so things i learned there i think that those are all things that are going to help so i think that experience has been uh, one of the best accomplishment although it didn't last long and uh, once covid hit uh, i had to actually decide uh, to come back to fpna because uh, i was working in the hospitality industry and once covid hit uh, all my cash flow stopped just because all my clients were in when were were all hotels and restaurants so that's the point i decided to come back but that experience was really really good in terms of shaping me as a better professional overall that's a great experience i appreciate you sharing that and i totally could understand covid hits yeah hospitality i'd worked in the travel and entertainment industry with american express so i understand that when i joined at the end of 2008 as you know all the banks had cut all their travel budgets we just gone through a huge recession and i can understand i was fortunate to get in at the time but it was a real challenge for us 
being a bank as well. We had the bank side and we had the travel side. So yeah, it was a difficult time for our business. And I sometimes you just have to pivot. You know, there are things you can't control that happen. But the learning, I agree with you, you know, starting my own business, learning how to sell, learning how to market, figuring out, you know, how to productionalize things. There's a lot of value that you get beyond just what you'd get from a traditional FP&A role. And that practice is still ongoing. So my dad retired early and he took over that and he's still running that practice. So it's it's still alive. All those people that I, I hired, most of them are still working with my dad. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations on that. It's quite an accomplishment, you know, to be able to keep that going. I know your dad's running it, but still, you know, kudos to you for starting that business and now, you know, doing it again in more of an area that you have a passion. That's great. Last couple questions here. We're going to ask a personal question. This is one we ask everybody on the show. What is something unique about you? Something we can't find online that you can share with our audience? Let me think about this one. Something I don't share a lot uh, is my core values. So I usually work or decide upon working on a project or on a job which are based on these core values. So one of them is learning and growth. So if I see that I will get an opportunity to learn and grow, I definitely would pick up that job or any project that I'm working on. And that may be one of the reasons I'm working with an education company like Coursera. Other uh, thing is I love sharing my knowledge. So whatever I learn, uh, I don't feel good if I don't share it. So if I keep it to myself, I feel that I'm not doing a good service to others. So sharing uh, and teaching is another passion that I have. So I think those two things really sum up Whatever I decide uh, to do in future, it will be around those values and those things that I like. You know, your unique thing is really your core values drive everything you're doing, which is great. I love that. And your core values is one, you want to make sure you're learning. If you're not going to learn from the project, does it really make sense? And two, you want to make sure you're sharing what you've learned. So you want to be able to help others as well as also make sure you're learning and growing. Great. Yep. Yeah, and when when I do that, I realize when I started doing that, I don't share this a lot, but I share this with people who I work closely with. And then I realize, okay, I attract a lot of people who are having similar mindset and similar objective. And that's the time when you connect uh, and you get good partners to work on with projects. So I think having this as a core value and like, being super focused on it. It has helped me a lot in terms of identifying good projects, also identifying good people to work with. Yeah, I I hear you. Good people to work with is so important. And thank you for sharing that. Now you've just shared it with a thousand, maybe 2000 people. So now everybody's going to know about your core values. I appreciate you, you know, sharing that. And I think those are great that you have those. This next question is probably one of my favorite because I love to see the diversity in answers. What's your favorite Excel formula, feature, function, What's your favorite thing in Excel? I think you will hate me for this, uh, but I have stopped using Excel. I have stopped using Excel for about a year and a half. So Coursera uses Google Sheets and I have like transitioned from Excel to Google Sheets in the last one, one, one and a half years. Boo! No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And I hated it when I initially did that. I think in a year and a half back, I even thought about quitting my job just because they were not using Excel. <laughs> so that was the first three months of using Google Sheets. But from what I remember, when I used to 
used excel last uh, frequently which was about a year and a half back i was very fortunate and i was very happy with the x lookup formula i think it i never had to go back to the v lookup or index match although index match is a slightly better function when you do modeling but if i had to pick one i would pick the x lookup because it i think it made my life a lot easier especially if i recollect when i used to do excel maybe a year and a half back yeah i was a big fan of x lookup i liked it and you know google sheets is a great spreadsheet right i mean it's a good program you can do a lot of things as well in it i mean obviously excel is the dominant tool out there and data rails is a big fan of it because their platform's built on it but i think we can both admit you know google sheets has a lot of good functionality i used it recently to build my kind of first model in google sheet i had to do it for a client that didn't use excel at first i was like, i don't want to do this i hate this but y- you get used to it and you find it has its benefits i mean every tool does yep Yes, it does. So I, I get that. And I'm glad you said XLOOKUP because I'm a big XLOOKUP fan. Yeah, and I do miss Excel a lot. Sometimes when I have to do really complex models and heavy models, which sometimes hang up in Google Sheets. So I do miss Excel sometimes. Uh, so if that makes you happy. Yeah, it can handle more data. I mean, it's been around 40 years, right? It's the dominant spreadsheet in the world. There's no uh, disputing that. It's the king still. Last question here. Well, actually, we got two. But last uh, question for the interview, and then we'll give you an opportunity to just tell people how they can follow you, learn about you, that type of thing. So what advice would you offer to someone starting their career today in FP&A? I mean, beyond reading your book, I'm putting a plug in for your book there. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that. What would you say? Right now, I see a lot of people uh, coming up and influencing a lot of young people. We are a a part of it as well. What I've seen from my interaction with uh, a lot of young folks, uh, especially those who are starting out in finance, they believe that if they don't get into FP&A in their first role, uh, that's a failure for them. And which is typically not right. So my message to people who are just starting out is if you cannot get into an FP&A role, it's all right. Get into any finance role get into accounting, get into auditing, get into any role which will give you some skills that you can later on use to transfer in an FP&A profile if you like, if that's the place that you want to be. Great advice. And I'll add something to that. I don't have an accounting background. I started my career writing contracts for the government, went to grad school, got an MBA in finance, did an internship more in IT. I was also doing a dual degree in information management. And then I got a role that it was called financial analyst, but it was really working in the business for nearly a year and a half. And I did some cash flow forecasting with it and then transferred over to FP&A. So no, it doesn't need to be your first role. You don't have to be an accountant. There's a lot of paths to FP&A. You need to understand accounting. I think you and I can agree on that, but you don't have to have that background. So I think people need to realize today in the the corporate world, your paths are going to take a lot of twists and turns. Rarely is it this nice straight ladder that you just climb. That's kind of a myth almost today with careers. So last question here, if people want to follow you, what would be the best way to follow you? How could they learn more about you? So best way would be LinkedIn. You can just search my name on LinkedIn and it'll come up. Or the second best way would be to go to my website, which is fpnaprofessionals.com. There you can find out all my content. Uh, you can also find out courses on FPNA, which I think are, are good ones. So if you want to check them out, you can go there as well. Great. Thanks for that, Asif. And thanks for being on the show. Again, congratulations on your book. If you haven't read it, go look out you know, to Kindle and 
download it. It's all about FPNA. So again, thank you for being on the show and appreciate you carving some time out for us. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much. I, I love this conversation and thank you for having me. Thank you.